Chapter 18 of History of the Norwegian People, Volume 1 by Knut Gershet. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 18 Towns and Commerce. The military operations of the Vikings constitute, in many ways, the great features of the period. This fact, together with the fallacious idea that they were only buccaneers and adventurers, has often diverted the attention from their peaceful pursuits and extensive friendly intercourse with other nations, so important to the development of Europe. We have seen that in very early times they had maintained extensive trade relations with peoples dwelling east and south of the Baltic Sea, that they had visited the British Isles, and no doubt also the coasts of Friesland and northern France, as merchants long before they were heard of as Vikings. Towns and trading places such as Uppsala, Sigtuna, and Berka, on Maleran in Sweden, Visby in Gothland, Skiringsal in Norway, Schleswig or Hedeby in Jutland, and Dorstadt in Friesland, are known to have existed at the beginning of the Viking period. Through the Viking expeditions, these early trade relations were so stimulated and developed as to become a systematized commerce, the first of the kind in northern Europe. With their fleets of merchant ships, the Vikings opened new routes of trade. They brought the products of Russia to the west, those of southern Europe, Spain, and France to the north, and found new markets for their own articles of export. Many of their expeditions were undertaken for the sake of trade, rather than for war. When they came to a foreign land, they often entered into an agreement with the inhabitants that for a certain number of days or weeks, perfect peace should be maintained, and as long as this lasted, a lively trade was carried on. Only after the period of peace was at an end did they consider it legitimate to plunder. During this period, Norway had more products for export than most other countries, the more important being dried codfish, herring, furs, walrus skin, from which rope was made, falcons, used extensively in hunting at that time, and walrus teeth which were considered very valuable. To the colonies and home markets, the Vikings brought the much-prized products of southern Europe, such as fine cloth, leather, wines, saddles, etc., and these new wares produced a hitherto unknown demand for articles of luxury. In 968, the Irish plundered Limerick, says the chronicler, and carried away the treasures and most valuable possessions of the Vikings. Their fine saddles, their gold and silver, their beautifully woven cloth of all kinds and colors, their silk and satin, both scarlet and green, and all kinds of cloth in the same way. These were all articles which the Norsemen had imported. The foreign saddles and the fine Cordovan leather, leather from Cordova, which was in great demand, showed that they carried on trade with Spain, where they would get from the Arabs the products of the Orient. Before the arrival of the Norsemen, the Irish had no ships, only boats made of skin, frail craft in which, however, they had been able to reach the distant islands. They had no cities or commerce, and they coined no money. To facilitate trade, the Norsemen introduced in Ireland a system of weights and measures, and here, as in Britain, they began to coin money. The words Mark, Old Norse Mirk, and Penning, Old Norse Penninger, had been incorporated into the Irish language as Mark and Pingil. The growth of towns as centers of trade followed as a direct result of Viking settlement and the development of commerce. Waterford, Cork, Limerick and other cities founded by the Vikings became important trading places, while Dublin developed into one of the leading emporiums of commerce in northern Europe. Silks and costly cloth of all kinds, leather, wines, and other products from the south were imported to Dublin, whence they were again brought by merchants to Norway, Denmark, Sweden, and Iceland. How rich and flourishing the Viking cities in Ireland were can be seen also from accounts of contemporary writers. In 941 to 942, King Merkitak, 
made a journey through all Ireland. He also visited Dublin, and nowhere did he receive such presents as there. In a song written by a contemporary poet, his reception is described as follows. A supply of his full store was given to Murkertach, son of Njal, of bacon, of good and perfect wheat. Also was got a blood debt of red gold. Joints of meat and fine cheese were given by the very good and very pure queen, and then was given, a thing to hear, a colored mantle for each chieftain. After the Battle of Glenmama, in the year 1000, King Brian captured Dublin. In this one place, says the old writer, there were found the greatest treasures of gold, silver, and findron, a sort of white bronze, of precious stones, carbuncles, drinking horns, and beautiful goblets. The Norsemen brought with them to Ireland the ideas of cities, commerce, and municipal life hitherto unknown, says Auguste J. Thebaud. The introduction of these supposed a total change necessary in the customs of the natives, and stringent regulations to which the people could not but be radically opposed. No more stringent rules could be devised, whether for municipal, rural, or social regulations. And as the Northmen are known to have been of a systematic mind, no stronger proof of this fact could be given. Also in the Scandinavian countries at home, and elsewhere along all the routes of trade, cities sprang into existence under the stimulating influence of Viking commerce. Rouen, in Normandy, became the most important trading center in France, and merchant vessels from Norway and Iceland anchored in the Seine. In Norway, the new commercial town of Tunsberg on the Christianiafjord soon outdistanced the older Schiringsal, and Kringhella, a new trading town, was founded on the southeastern part. Halura, probably located on the coast of Skåne in Sweden, and Brainerne, near the mouth of the Goethe River, became important commercial centers. A lively intercourse was also maintained between Ireland and the English seacoast towns across the Irish Sea, which had either been founded or developed by the Vikings. Several of these towns grew into prominence, such as Swansea, Tenby, Chester, and especially Bristol, which had become a great trading center, and in course of time superseded Dublin and Waterford as the greatest commercial city on the shores of the Irish Sea. In the Midlands, the towns of the five boroughs, Lincoln, Leicester, Nottingham, Stamford, and Derby, Old Norse Dyrbir, became cities of importance, and on the east coast of England, Grimsby and York grew into prominence. At the time of the Domesday Book, York was, next to London and Winchester, the largest city in England. In speaking of the influence of the Vikings on the development of English commerce, Mr. W. Cunningham says, The English were satisfied with rural life. They were little attracted by the towns which the Romans had built, and they did not devote themselves to commercial pursuits or to manufacturing articles for sale. The Danes, though so closely allied in race, appear to have been men of a different type. They were great as traders and also as seamen. We may learn how great their prowess was from the records of their voyages to Iceland, Greenland, and America, from accounts of their expeditions to the White Sea and the Baltic, and from their commerce with such distant places as the Crimea and Arabia. Their settlements in this country were among the earliest of the English towns to exhibit signs of activity. Not only were the Danes traders, they were also skilled in metalwork and other industrial pursuits. England has attained a character for her shipping, and has won the supremacy of the world in manufacturing. It almost seems as if she were indebted, on those sides of life on which she is most successful, to the fresh energy and enterprise engrafted by Danish settlers and conquerors. By the efforts of Roman missionaries she had been brought into contact with the remains of Roman civilization, but by the infusion of the Danish element she was drawn into close connection with the most energetic of the northern races. 
August J. Thaywood says, Endowed with all the characteristics of the Scandinavian race, deeply infused with the blood of the Danes and the Northmen, she, England, has all the indomitable energy, all the systematic grasp of mind and sternness of purpose, joined to the wise spirit of compromise and conservatism of the men of the far north. She, of all nations, has inherited their great power of expansion at sea, possessing all the roving propensities of the old Vikings, and the spirit of trade, enterprise, and colonization of those old Phoenicians of the Arctic Circle. A similar influence was exerted by the Norsemen on the naval development of France. It is the great achievement of the Normans, says Depping, that they gave France a navy. There was no longer any navy in France, and she had ceased to be numbered among maritime nations. The Normans re-established the marine, and William the Conqueror succeeded in forming a fleet, the like of which France had not seen. The conquests made by the Normans in Sicily were due in part to their superiority in navigation. It may be due to the same influence that Normandy furnishes more sailors and pilots than any other part of France, and that many of the leading French admirals have been Normans. We have seen that the Vikings had early learned to build fortifications and stone towers of great strength, that besides the fortified camps and strongholds built for military purposes, they also surrounded their towns and cities, especially in the colonies, with walls and moats which virtually made them fortresses of great military importance. The building of castles was first developed in Normandy, and the Donjon or square tower, so typical in medieval castles, is thought to be of Viking origin. In Ireland, the Norsemen began to build fortified strongholds as early as 840. Cork was fortified in 866, and in a saga of the 11th century, Limerick is called the city with riveted stones. Dublin, where stood the royal hall or castle, with its massive stone tower, was surrounded by walls and moats, and was called the Strong Fortress. Waterford, too, had walls and moats, and a royal castle where the king used to dwell. An old stone tower is still found there, called Reginald's Tower, Ragnvaldstorn, supposed to be the Donjon of the old royal castle. It is known to have stood there in 1170, when the English captured Waterford. York and the cities of the five boroughs in England were also well fortified. The Roman towns in early Britain were destroyed by the Anglo-Saxons when they conquered the country. Of the 56 cities of Roman Britain, says W. Cunningham, there is not one in regard to which it is perfectly clear that it held its ground as an organized center of social life through the period of English conquest and English settlement. Many of these old ruined cities were rebuilt by the Vikings, and many new ones were founded. These Viking cities were the first to show the signs of municipal and urban life, both in Great Britain and Ireland. They became centers not only of trade, but also of industry, as the Danes and Norsemen also devoted themselves to industrial pursuits, and produced wares of their own make for the general market. The Vikings had a keen sense for legal justice, and maintained strict order in their towns. They developed a system of city laws of which traces are still found in English city government. End of chapter 18